I'm really glad that it's rained today because it gives me a chance to say, no, I'm not going to use the word scruffy. In Botswana, the unit of currency is the pula, and pula means rain, because rain is precious. And today's rain, however scruffy it made some of us look, is God's blessing to us. And because we, where I live, we're surrounded by farms, really grateful that God gives the autumn and spring rains, and that's part of what's mentioned there. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. Just thought I'd mention it. Um, what I've said so far today is that the key, the core value in the kingdom values that we could talk about is that we are a kingdom community. And I've spent a lot of time talking about God's hospitality and the welcome that we give. Our hospitality. Our hospitality, I was going to say our hospitableness as the people of God. That is at the heart of what God's called us to be in a lonely, difficult, dark, sometimes meaningless, sometimes confusing world. And there are two things in this passage that I want um, to pick out. And the first is that we are a repentant community and the second is that we are a praying community and of course those two things go together and certainly in the first part the repentant part um, it's quite hard to talk about this um, I don't want to be somber I still remember as a nine-year-old um, in a high church setting before my confirmation making my confession for the first time and then burning the list of sins, the little nine-year-old sins that I'd committed. And I'd confessed them, and the priest, who happened to be my father, said, go in peace, my child, the Lord has taken away your sin, and pray for me, a sinner. And I went outside, and I burnt them. I was allowed to play with matches to burn my sins up. And that sense of, woof, it's gone. So first of all, I am going to talk about um, sin. All that so far. A kingdom community is a repenting and forgiving community. Uh, one of you said to me today, can I love as Christ does if I'm not living as Christ lives? The short answer is yes, of course you can. But here's the story. You'll remember, many of you, that in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge some years ago, a tourist tripped over a shoelace and fell on a very large, very valuable Ming vase. I've seen the vase. There were two of them. There are, I think, I remember, they're on the, the staircase as you go up to the first flight. They're about that high. And it smashed into thousands of pieces. The then um, curator of the museum told me some years later he was about to become master of a Cambridge college and the vice chancellor of the university said to him, you cannot leave the museum until that vase has been fixed. And so he didn't. It took two years. I've seen 
the repaired vase. And I imagine that the restorers at various points over those two years, looking at that, those tables full of pieces, sometimes thought, it will never happen. And most of us would have thrown it away. But that's not how Ming vases are treated. And so, piece by piece, painful stroke by painful stroke, it was put back together again. And the two vases now stand there. They're slightly better protected than they used to be. <laughs> but you know you can't tell which was the broken one. And we're like that, only we're not the end product yet. We are being put back together because we are so valuable to God. I'm repeating myself, aren't I? I hope you're getting this. That God cannot do anything but put you back together again until one day nobody will be able to see a single flaw. And you're thinking, pull the other leg. And of course, if you'd seen those tables full of bits, you'd have said, it'll never happen. And they did it. And when I look at you in bits, sometimes, I might be tempted to say of you, or you of me, or you of yourself, it'll never happen. And yet, the day will come when there'll be nothing to weep about anymore. Have you read that somewhere in the Bible? In Revelation, last two chapters, the day will come when nobody will be able to tell where the cracks were. And that is precious. But in the meantime, unlike in the museum where that vase disappeared for two years, you're on show in this kingdom community that is the church, partly restored, partly broken, but on show for the world to see that you are a work in progress. And the glue that I want to talk about now that is putting you as individuals and the church as a community back together again is the glue of repentance and forgiveness. And that is what, for me, ever since I know myself as a child, that knowledge that I am a sinner, that I've done wrong, and that God is putting me back together again. And on the cross, Jesus died for my sins, the sins I've committed, the sins I haven't yet committed. And day by day, the glue of that, the glue of what Christ did on the cross is putting you and me back together again and transforming us. Now, we live in a world where people don't talk very much about sin anymore, and certainly not about repentance or forgiveness. You may have noticed that we live in a shame culture. We live in a culture where the most important thing is not to be caught out, isn't it? 
Now, I don't know the rights and the wrongs of Justice Kavanaugh in the States and his accuser and what went on in a university a long time ago. But I do see in that whole discussion that there's very little about the truth of the matter and a lot about shame, about being caught out. We're only seeing acted out what happened with Bill Clinton um, a long time ago and with other politicians in this country and elsewhere. And isn't it interesting what's going on in the whole Salisbury case, which I won't comment on in any detail, detail at all. What's going on? Where's the truth? The truth is you're not going to catch me out. But repentance is not about shame. Repentance is not about whether you saw me doing it. Repentance, and this is what James is about, this is what that chapter 5 is about, and I know Martin's joking because he knows all this already. Um, he's, he's there. You're there as well. There is something in the Christian gospel that is very freeing, first of all, about admitting wrongdoing. I've done wrong. I will never forget the day when a woman I'd asked to give a testimony in the park, in public, the songs of praise... I thought she was just going to tell the story of her, her conversion. Stood up, spoke about her marriage, and then said over the loudspeaker to all and sundry to hear in the town, and then I committed adultery. And it was like the whole town stopped. And something happened there because the truth was told. And one of the key things about James is that he's saying to you, church, tell the truth because the truth will set you free. And it's not just the good truth that sets you free, but the bad truth because that's the first step towards repentance. And for all those of you clever people who did literature at school and read Chaucer, nobody's ever read Chaucer's Priests tale, which is the last one in the collection. Or maybe there will be one or two. I read it. And in that, the first thing that Chaucer's priest says, and I guess this is as they're approaching Canterbury, and we walked part of the Pilgrim's Way this afternoon, some of us. The first thing that the priest says is you admit wrongdoing. It's gospel. Do you mean that I can say I did that and still come to church? Yes. Do you mean that I can admit that for all those years I was and still be part of the kingdom community? Yes. This is actually what the welcome is about. It's the welcome of sinners to the table of the Lord before you're glued together so that you may be glued together. This isn't rocket science. I'm only telling you because you know it, so that you can be reminded in your dark moments that it actually works. And having admitted wrongdoing, that you say sorry. And there are ways and ways and ways of saying sorry. And one of the 
not so good ways of saying sorry is explaining why you did it. I don't care why you kicked the vase over, it was wrong. Not, well, I happened to be in a bad mood that day, or my mother made me do it, or my father made me do it, but actually, I did it. And there is a way of saying sorry that I've sometimes used, particularly with my wife, I know that. She'd laugh if she were here and say yes. And that is saying, sorry, 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 now can we talk about something else? <laughs> do you know that one? <laughs> Are you laughing because you know it? Or because you don't know it? <laughs> but I mean really saying, I'm sorry. Paul says it in Romans 7, and it's verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? I'm a mess. I've let you down. I've hurt you. I've damaged you. I've wounded you. And in some of those sins, I can't put it back right. I haven't stolen your cow, and I can buy you a new cow in return. But I've killed someone. I've wounded someone. I've changed the course of someone's life. And I can think of instances where I have eternal regret. I'm sorry. And there are some people I wish I could say sorry to because they're not near enough for me now to say sorry to them. And the third thing in this is that we need to ask for help. We need to ask for help from the Holy Spirit. And we need to ask for help from the church. Now, it's not appropriate for everybody in the church to stand up here and say everything that they've done wrong. But I do note that in James, confess your sins to one another simply means that. Do you know, one of the things that fueled the Methodist revival, and here the church history lecturer will kick in just for a little bit, is that the Wesleys set up um, what came to be known as bands, little groups. Um, and there were men or women or young single men, that kind of thing. After the order of the Moravians and Count Zinzendorf and all of that in Germany, don't need to know that detail. And in the bands, each week, each person in the group, in public, 12 people, was asked a number of questions. And one of them was, what sins have you committed this week? Now, I don't know if it would work in the 21st century, but I think we've moved just a little bit too far away from the idea of sharing sin in appropriate ways. And I know that when this parishioner of mine, Shirley, stood up and said, I committed adultery, something happened which transformed the congregation and probably touched some people who were just walking past walking their dogs. And so it was right for her to say it. We need to ask for help from each other. And so sometimes it's good to say, I've done this. It might be that you need just to say it to one other person. Jesus, after all, says it in Matthew chapter 18. It's there, shot through the scriptures. Oh yes, I was telling you about the Wesleys. And the last question that is down in the instructions to the, the band is, the band leader says, is there anything 
that you haven't wanted to tell us that you're hiding from us. So it's poking a little bit. And no, I'm all right. My vase is perfect, look. And we can actually see the bits all over the floor. So why don't we just get real with each other and admit that not only are we scruffy, I've said that to you this morning, said I wouldn't say it, but we are also sinners. And we admit it, we are sorry, and I need your help. I need your help. So that's the first bit of this thing about repentance. And you get that, I know. And it may be that some of you need some help to go and say sorry somewhere about something and you've been putting it off. And all I need to say to you is don't put it off any longer. Ask for prayer ministry if you need it. We will. Martin, you've got oil, have you, that we can anoint people with. So it may be that um, we're just going to anoint. Some of you may just want to come forward to be anointed by the Holy Spirit for the strength to go and do what you know you need to do. You don't need to tell anybody, but you just need to receive that Spirit's touch. So it's not about shame. It's about admitting it, saying sorry, and asking for help. The gospel is simple. Um, I could say it in a grown-up way. I'd use longer words. I'd be saying exactly the same thing. One of the things I've taught myself over the years, if if it can't be said to a five-year-old, it's not worth saying, because Jesus died for five-year-olds too, and four-year-olds. Now, maybe the harder part of this, um, the kingdom community as a community of repentance and forgiveness, is what we do when we have been wronged. And I know that this is going to be more difficult just over the conversations I've had as a mentor and counselor and priest over the years. It's the nature of it. Forgiveness is, first of all, about handing over revenge to God. Romans 13. I have often felt vengeful. I remember a motorcyclist who was carved up by a driver in Trinidad saying to me that he got great pleasure overtaking the car, kicking it several times with his motorcycle boot, denting it, and then driving off. And he laughed when he told me that. A, that's very dangerous to do if you're a motorcyclist. B, that's not what we do when we have been wronged. That's not what we do. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How is none of my business. And if God chooses to be gentle in that vengeance and to repay in a different currency, that's God's business. It's not mine. But I thought I ought to say, in case there's somebody here, and I don't know that there is, I don't get words of knowledge like that very often, and I'm not getting one now, so I'm not getting at you. If God's getting at you, that's God's business. If you're feeling vengeful, just examine that in the light of Christian scripture. But the second thing, and this we probably all need to do, is we need to release the person who has wronged us from their indebtedness to us. I want, you've wronged me. What I really want to do, I know I'm going to have to forgive you because I'm a Christian, but I want to make you suffer first. It's not quite vengeance, is it? 
And while you do that, you imprison the person who has wronged you. But the trap, the devil's trick, is that you actually imprison yourself too. Because when you tie the person who has wronged you to yourself, then you're carrying them around with you. I once saw on Maddingley Road in Cambridge a runner <coughs> running with a long chain behind him and a, a truck tyre tied to the back of it. Like, well, he wasn't going that fast. I think now that he must have been part of the Antarctic expedition because the Antarctic um, research stuff is up there. And he was preparing to cross the Antarctic. And so I understand he was trying to strengthen himself. But when I won't let go quite yet, and because my wife has wronged me, I want to rub her face in it a little bit, I am, picture it, like this. And I'm dragging her behind me. And so not only do we hand over revenge to God, if there is any revenge, it's God's business, but I need to let go. And that is so hard to do. So this isn't easy, and I'm not wanting to say to you, just go away and do it, but if you are holding something or someone like that, maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to start doing this, finger by painful finger, until the person is let go. Ah. What then do I do, they say to me often, if I want to forgive a person but I can't quite find it in myself? Am I in trouble with God? To which my question is usually, do you want to, want to, want to, want to forgive the person? You can put as many wants in the sentence as you want or need to. Are you on the beginning of a process of wanting to, want to, want to forgive? To which most people, most Christian people, will say yes, but I haven't got there yet. And I'd say to you at that point, you're on a journey of forgiveness. There's um, another piece to be glued into the vase and another piece to be glued into the vase. So I don't want to say to you, get into a kind of artificial, oh, it's all right, I'll forgive you then, which isn't forgiveness. But are you working towards it? Again, this isn't rocket science. Um, but I guess that there are people here who have been deeply wronged and scarred. And the scar's not going to go away. And it's when the scars won't go away and they throb when it's cold or rainy. Or you look down and you see, sometimes you see a physical scar that someone has inflicted on you. But more often than not, it's a, an emotional or moral scar or stain. And you don't know what to do with it. And if you want to want to want to forgive, I hear God's voice saying gently to you, you're on the way. That's the way. My daughter, my son.
And here is something, this sticks in the mouth, pray for the person. Pray for the person. And sometimes uh, this is the, the bit where it ends. If I am to forgive you for having changed the course of my life in a bad way, then I have to accept the pain of the course that my life is now taking. I wish I could tell you it was easier than this, but I think this is the nuts and bolts of what it was like for Jesus on the cross and what it's like for us as a result. This is serious business. We can work together towards it. And this is what James is doing when he says in those simple words, confess your sins to one another and the prayer of a righteous person and all of that. And we often can't do this on our own. Now, there are just two um, knots that I want to say here. Um, Forgiveness is not about liking the person who has wronged you. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you've got to like everybody. So that's, oh, well, that is a big relief, actually. A lot of my parishioners I would not have chosen. (laughs) I'm not going to ask Martin. (laughs) And forgiveness is not about forgetting the sin. Where is it, where does it say forgive and forget? Do you know how many people think it's in the Bible? Now, there are Bible texts which says that the Lord has put our sin as far away from us as the east is from the west and so on, and he will remember it no more. But when people say forgive and forget, actually quoting an 8th century Anglo-Saxon proverb which is not in the Bible. And forgiving is about remembering and releasing and working with. If you can forget, you probably don't need to forgive unless it's a very small thing. You stole my last Rolo. (laughs) Well, you see, I've forgotten that already. But we're dealing with much deeper and more significant things there. It's just one. Yeah, there are two things here before it's time to talk. The first is that um, I find it easier to forgive other people than I do to forgive myself. And I guess that there are some of you here who are struggling with self-hatred. And you know as well as I do that there is an epidemic of self-harm in our country. And there are all sorts of reasons for that amongst girls and boys. And some of it is very horrible. And it's hard about not accepting ourselves because we don't like how we are, because we feel that we are in some way bad. And some of this Christians suffer from, and it's about a lack of forgiveness. Now, some of the things you won't forgive in yourself are because you really like to think of yourself as perfect, but actually... Um, self-forgiveness is about accepting that you are a sinner and that it would have been really nice if you hadn't done wrong, but you have done wrong and God gives you a new start. What God isn't doing is wheeling you back into the Garden of Eden. 
God's not wheeling you back into the Garden of Eden. So you do need to learn um, to forgive yourself. And not because we've got um, an exalted clergy person in our midst, an archdeacon in other words, but um, I was going to say this anyway, and that is that the things that I've said about repentance and forgiveness do not take away from all the strictures about safeguarding. It's really important to hear this. Um, I was asked by another archdeacon in another part of the country to work with, work spiritually with someone, a clergy person who was being prosecuted for um, inappropriate behavior, which if he was found guilty of would find him in prison. And sure enough, in due course, he was sentenced to a period of time in prison. And that's really hard. And I couldn't say to this person, it's all right, God forgives you. We had to deal with some really hard and difficult and painful stuff. And forgiveness and repentance don't let us off any legal hook or responsibility hook to care for the vulnerable. So that's part of the package too. And much as I get irritated by all the safeguarding procedures, confession over, they are important and they are a part of the real earthiness of what Jesus did on the cross. He didn't do it so that we could do what we like. He did it so that we no longer needed to do what sin made us like. And so sometimes we have to go to jail. And this particular clergy person had to go to jail. He's now got a ministry working with other people who have gone to jail in the same way. Which isn't a ministry he would have chosen for himself. But it's a necessary ministry. And he can preach it in a way that I can't. So that's quite somber, isn't it, some of that? But it is at the heart of what's hurting in the world. And we have an answer which is costly, free, and to be worked at. And you might not be quite so bubbly as you were this morning, but I will ask you just to talk to the people alongside you. I'm not asking you to confess sins. Don't remember. I'd like you to, as this morning, to say what you've heard or what's struck you or what you're not sure about. Just buzz so you, I can shut up for a minute. But thank you. I mean, maybe it's good to remember that forgiveness is a journey. Yes. And that want to want to want, mm. I think, is yeah. quite releasing. Good. Because I think if we were honest, nearly all of us find it difficult sometimes yeah. to forgive mm. Yeah. Do you know why I'm wise in the matter of forgiveness? Is because I find it so difficult, so I'm only talking to myself. But thank you. I'm glad that helped. I think for me there's um, helpfulness to, to distinguish between God's forgiveness 
and the forgiveness of government or not, yes, uh, or the legal system, mm. that actually we still have to live with the consequences of our sin, of our bad choices yeah. on this earth, mm. even if the consequences are not held against us in eternity. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. Did, did, did most of you hear that? Um, can you actually stand up and say it again a bit louder, Martin? Because I think it's impo- really important. Can we use his legs in there? Yeah. So I, I wanted to recognise, I think, that it's helpful to think that actually um, there can be a distinction between the legal consequences of our earthly bad choices mm. on earth and the spiritual release that comes from seeking God's forgiveness mm. and so our sins are not held against us in, a, in eternity and in the spiritual realm but actually we still need to live with the bad choices that are made on earth yeah. mm. hence we can be forgiven but still go to prison yeah. if it's that sort of sin mm. thank you Yeah. And basically, talking about that side of it, the forgiveness of the person needs to know they're not offended. And I only just finish off with sort of thinking about the aspect that Jesus kind of said um, or thought in this way not the reminding our person of their sin, but absorbing it. Yeah. Rather than trying to correct it. Hmm. I, th- there is a time and a place for not saying anything. Um, but I'm aware of the fact that if I absorb too many of the unconscious sins of the people around me, I might end up crumbling. And so I would need to take it somewhere. Uh, I'm thinking of people, you know, in public office sometimes. I, mean, I, I hear the stories of some of the clergy and members of the congregation who are bombarded from every side with that kind of unsinking stuff um, and I can take so much but I will kick the cat eventually and before I kick the cat I need to find a better way but thank you that's a useful thing to think about I'm going to move on um, because I want to say not just that we are to be a hospitable kingdom community and a repenting forgiving kingdom community but a praying kingdom community. And those are the things, if I had another 40 minutes, I would say all those things. But I just want to tell you a story and make a point out of it, because I wonder sometimes, and this is a general comment about churches, kingdom communities, whether sometimes we have fallen out of the habit of being a praying church. And that may be a funny thing to say to you, and it may, it's probably entirely untrue here, and I know lots of you pray fervently and you have prayer meetings and the like, but I know churches where nobody asks, ever asks anybody for prayer. And I wonder whether they are such together people that they have no needs. 
or whether they have so fallen out of the habit of prayer that they have forgotten James's words, which are, um, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, and goes on to talk about Elijah, or um, even in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, the Lord will raise them up. And this is one of my favorite stories. Um, some years ago, I took a group of students from one theological college, uh, not Ridley, um, to Liverpool, to Toxteth on mission. And Toxteth, some of the burnt out buildings are still there burnt out. It's still a very hurting place. And we preached in the churches and we did work in the schools and all the rest of it. But on a particular Friday night, um, at the behest of a very eccentric Pentecostal layman, we decided to go into the center of Liverpool One to Clubland um, from 10 o'clock in the evening till 3 o'clock in the morning. There were already street pastors and all that kind of stuff there. And this Pentecostal gentleman had got a cross, which was a good two-thirds of the size of that. It was monstrous. And he carried it. I don't know how he got it to the car park outside Liverpool, one where we were. But he stood it, bang, in the middle of the car park, which surrounded by bombed-out buildings. And he shouted at God, and he called down the heavens, and he called on the Holy Spirit to come and pour into Liverpool One and Clubland and all the rest of it. And here's poor little meek, shy me, thinking, oh, what's going to happen next? Well, what happened next is we dragged this cross into what I had never seen before because I've never clubbed. I'm that old. <laughs> and we stood outside a club called Resurrection. <laughs> the irony is obvious. With this cross, and we prayed, and we had a team, and a couple of people just went round and said to the people who were going in and out of the clubs, and there were several of them in that area, if you would like us to pray for you, just come to the people who are standing by the cross and they will pray for you. And I did not expect a queue to form. I did not expect a queue to form. There was one person who criticized us for being there, and it was a Roman Catholic lady who said, what have you brought that here into this filthy place for? And thought, well, isn't that exactly where Calvary was, in that filthy place outside the city? She didn't get it. But somehow, and of course, some of them were high, and some of them were drunk, and some of them were maudlin, and many of them were in tears as they queued to be prayed for in a way that often doesn't happen in English churches when the same offer is made. And I thought, is this a case where the children need to teach us that prayer works and because a few stupid Christians had bothered to go into clubland and offer prayer, well, we're up for it. And some of the things that they asked for prayer for were deeply moving and were not the bottle or the drug speaking. They were deep, deep hurts. Where did it go? I have no idea where it went. 
But then that's a lot of Christian ministry. You pour it out and it sinks into the ground and some of it comes back up <coughs> through the sap and it rises. And so the question is whether in some ways we have lost faith with prayer or whether we have even lost faith with God. And I could go into a lecture here, of course, about unanswered prayer and all of the rest of it and what happens when we pray for someone to be healed and they die and been there, struggled with all of that. But I do know, believe in my head, in my heart, and so my hands go out when I pray for people, that whenever I pray for someone, that person will never leave untouched by God. The touch may not be the touch that they or I desire, but God will touch them far more profoundly. Not just because they've come forward. And so I am often puzzled. And the invitation in the time that we've got left is, yes, there'll be prayer ministry, and I don't know if there'll be music during it. We'll, we'll have a bit of worship music. But ask Martin, am I going to do this on my own? You're going to join me? Is Adele going to join me? How are we going to do it? Can, do I make it up as I go along? That's not very Anglican. Okay, right, I'll make it up as I go along. Um, I and anybody else who'd like to join me at the front who isn't involved in prayer ministry at the back to lay hands and pray for those who would simply like a touch of God either for themselves or for someone else. I love laying hands on people on behalf of someone who's not here. You can't tear the roof off and lower the bed through, but you can bring the person here by dragging yourself forward. Then we need to recover a sense of not just prayerfulness, but of the power of prayer. And that when I pray for you, or Martin, or Adele, or anybody else, you will be touched. It's as simple as that. So if we could have some quiet worship music, if the people who are offering prayer ministry at the back make themselves available in cases...